Before in spirit, many, many scriptures I did not cover, but I took two sermons because I felt that that was a very, very important introduction to the teaching that Christ had for his disciples, that we recognize our spiritual poverty and therefore are seeking spiritual wealth, laying up treasure in heaven. That's what he would have us to do, realizing that we have nothing of value on this earth. As a summary of that, let's go on today to verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that mourn. Now, there are a lot of people today who are mourning the loss of loved ones, be it mates, be it children. There are those who are mourning the loss of wealth. There are many, many reasons to be sad, frustrated, and I suppose to mourn uh, today. We are in a society that wants to be happy, happy, uh, that wants to be instantly gratified, that wants every day to every day and every moment, I guess, to be a moment of joy and happiness. And yet, and don't we, wouldn't we like to be happy all the time? Wouldn't we like to be joyful? Do we like to be sad? Do we like to mourn? Do we like to hurt? No, we don't. And yet God says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately. Now, what does it mean then here, blessed are those that mourn? Isn't joy one of the fruits of God's Spirit? And yet here it says, blessed are those that mourn. Does that contradict that God's Spirit will provide joy? And peace. Well, we've just discussed being poor in spirit, understanding our spiritual poverty. So it is only, I think, logical that the next step would be blessed are those that mourn, because when you see your spiritual poverty, it makes you mournful. When you truly understand what you lack spiritually, the great gulf that is between us and God. I think that would be a a case of one of the greatest times of mourning, the greatest time of mourning that there could possibly be would be Lazarus and the rich man. You remember the story where the rich man realized he had lost out on the kingdom of God and perhaps was seeing those that had been glorified in a part of that kingdom and himself left out. And he was mourning very sorrowfully there. So that would be the ultimate mourning, and a mourning that could not be comforted, because he saw that he was going into the lake of fire, and and other people were going into the kingdom of God to live in peace, prosperity, happiness, and joy forevermore. Now that ultimately is a mourning that cannot be comforted. But somewhere along the line, those who mourn will be comforted. We need to understand what context that means. If we see ourselves falling short, we become less judgmental, we become less critical of others because we realize that we ourselves have fault, we ourselves fall short of the mark and are not spiritually as mature as we should be. So the perception of ourself should make us more. We see 
in what remains of the church today, many, many people who are part of different organizations who are not really mournful. They think that they have something to do that is important for them to do, and they're all excited about it. But where is the mourning? You see, if you mourn, it's because there's been some loss, some lack, some need, something that is not fulfilled. But if you think that you are rich and have need of nothing, what's there to mourn about? And most people today that are left in the church feel that they are rich, that they have everything they need. Therefore, they do not mourn. So, should we be mourning? I guess that's the question. It's one way to get blessed and comforted. Let's see if Scripture backs up the idea that it's good to mourn in order to be comforted. First of all, let's go back to Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3. Verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up. Showing synonyms, antonyms here, contrasts. Time to pluck up that which is planted. Time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There are times for all these. What time are we in now? It is important always to comprehend what time you're in. Where are we? What should we be doing? What is God's purpose at the moment? If there's a time for all these things we just read, what is today a time for? Now, there's a time to go to work, there's a time to quit work, and you know which is which, don't you? You have it figured out. There's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time to eat, and there's a time not to eat. Maybe right after you ate, is not a time to eat. <clears throat> but we try to figure out, what time is it? Don't people ask you quite often, what time is it? They don't, know what, they don't really want to know what time it is, they want to know what time it isn't. If it's still ten till time to go to work, that's what they want to know. They want to know if they have ten minutes left. We need to know what time it is. Let's go to one more in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Anybody here believe that? Which would you prefer? By nature, I much prefer the house of feasting to the house of mourning. Never did care much for mourning. Always liked the feast. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now this goes against your grain and mine. I would rather laugh than be sorrowful, wouldn't you, as a human being on this earth, walking? 
Now, Ecclesiastes is written from the standpoint of a normal, carnal human being on this earth, unconverted. The unconverted way of looking at things is I'd much rather laugh and feast than I would go hungry and mourn. <clears throat> but sorrow, it says, is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of laughter. So he's saying here that through sorrow and through mourning, you will learn something. In other words, mourning and sorrow are a teaching and a learning tool. Now, if you recognize your spiritual poverty and recognize that you need spiritual wealth, then it only follows that if there is sorrow and mourning, you might learn what you need to learn. How much have we ever learned laughing, cutting up, having a good time? Probably not much. We had a good time, but we didn't learn much. Now there's a time to laugh, but there's also a time to mourn. And I think that it is quite possible that we can laugh and cut up even though we mourn. If our overall spiritual attitude is one of mourning and sorrow over our lacks and our spiritual poverty, yet we can still encourage each other, we can still laugh, while we still recognize the great need that we have. And sometimes we can encourage one another through laughter and happiness to go on, even though the road is hard and there is mourning underneath. <clears throat> but you're going to learn more in sad times and hurtful times than you will in good times. Do we then begin to see a clue of why God might cause a lot of mourning? Let's hit Psalm 42. Psalm 42. I'll pick up the context in verse 1. <clears throat> As the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul uh, pants after you, O God. David was in a time of trial, trouble, difficulty, and he had seen deer who were hungry, thirsty at least, out in the desert and headed for water and how desperately they wanted to drink. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And he said, here I am, I'm seeking God, I'm after God. When is my soul going to be satisfied with the presence of God? Ever have that thought, that feeling? How about lately? Where is God? Why isn't God answering? Why isn't God here? Why isn't God doing what we wish? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? David was a man who sought God, worshipped God, most of the time obeyed God, and yet he was having serious difficulties, and people were looking at him and his trials and troubles and saying, Where's your God? <clears throat> Where is he? Where's he gone? Now, when David came through all of this, all of his life, 70 years of it, it is said of him in Acts that he will be in the kingdom of God. It says that in Hebrews 11. He'll be king over all Israel. 
Well, now, if someone was that notable, and it will be that important someday in a resurrection, why would someone like that have sorrow? I mean, there's one of the men <clears throat> who obviously had to have been one of the righteous, most righteous men to ever walk the face of the earth, David the king. Well, why is he in this attitude? Why is he crying out and he can't seem to find God and everybody's laughing at him? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. He says, I've been obeying. Where are you? <clears throat> Why is everyone saying you're not with me? If there's any place in the Scriptures that I think we are today, it's right here. I say that fairly often, don't I? <laughs> because all the Scriptures are coming together right now. In so many places, almost every place you read, it seems like we're talking about today. We're having the same trouble David did. Where is my God? Why are people laughing? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted in me? Hope you in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Now, it seemed to David that God had turned his face from him, right? And he says, I'll be patient, and I will yet see the joy of his countenance. I'll see him smile at me. We aren't the first ones, brethren who have suffered what you and I are suffering in the church today. We're not the first by any means. We are the final ones, the last ones to have this attitude and this approach. Not the first by any means, but the last. <clears throat> Verse 6, O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember you from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. He remembered the cool, the nice places, the Jordan River, up on top of Mount Hermon, away from the heat moor, and up in the trees. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your water spouts. All your waves and your billows are gone over me. I enjoy some of the things you've created, but it seems like I'm being overrun. There's too much. I can't handle it. I'm like I'm drowning here. Yet the Eternal will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me in my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? <coughs> Excuse me. As with a sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me. Well, they say daily, Where is your God? It wasn't just his enemies questioning. What does he say next? Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope you in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. I'm yet going to smile. I will yet be happy through God. Even though he wasn't at the time. Uh, you and I know a lot of the things David went through and why uh, people would point at him and laugh and jeer. But he survived all that. <clears throat> Psalm 55. 
Give ear to my prayer, O God. Those are words spoken by a man who did not feel he had God's ear. But he went to God to pray. He didn't think God was listening. He thought he was, all his prayers are falling on deaf ears. Again, I think we're acquainted with the feeling. Hide not yourself from my supplication. Didn't he say he'd turned his face from us and hidden from us? We know the reasons for that. We'll not yet review them. We'll touch on that as we go. Attend to me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise. He groaned, he moaned in his prayers. He lay on his bed and tossed and turned, thought of God, and moaned bitterly because of the situation he found himself in. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Sometimes we feel we're not healed if things don't change. The terrors of death are almost upon us. That's the way he felt. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, and see if this emotion has ever come over you. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. We see the winds rising. We see the tempest rising in the world. We see trouble in the church. And don't you some days feel like, man, I wish I could just fly away and be in a safe place out in the wilderness somewhere where no harm and no hate, no misery could be. Let's go to Proverbs 5. <clears throat> now this is written from the standpoint of a physical man with the wrong kind of woman. But we have the church here as well, and the church today is overall flirting with the wrong kind of woman. And most of the church is going to accept the mark of the beast. Ninety percent of it will worship the beast, at least temporarily, until they realize they have made a sorrowful mistake and begin to repent. But in most cases, it will be too late, and they will die in captivity, martyred. Well, it's dangerous to consort with the wrong kind. <clears throat> so it's, it says in verse 3, The lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as the two-edged sword. can be enticing. This world can entice us. The government that is coming can be enticing and will be enticing so much so that even the very elect could be deceived if it were possible. It is going to be that charming, that exciting, when they start trying to set up their millennium soon, people will be sucked in by it. It will just seem like the way to go. Satan makes very, very clever counterfeits, <clears throat> and it will be so easy to be sucked in. Most of the church will be. But her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on the grave. Lest you should ponder the path of life, her ways are movable that you cannot know them. Not stable, not solid, but moving around here and there emotionally, and you never know where she's coming from for sure. 
Hear me now, therefore, O you children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove you your way far from her, and come not near the door of her house. What do we have a problem with today? We may have come out from the strange woman of this world, its society, its culture, because this world and its culture is estranged from God. It is not of God. And using this analogy of a woman, her ways are wrong. And we've started coming out, haven't we? We're trying to get away from it. And yet it says, don't even hang around the door of her house. Now, I think there is where the great danger lies. We see mentally that we need to separate from this world. And we started that coming out process. But there are certain things in this world that we have trouble getting away from entirely. So we hang around the door. We may not be in the house with her, but we're right outside the door still pining for some of her charms. Still wanting some things from her society and her culture. That is a dangerous place to be. Don't hang around her door whatever it might be. There are people who think they can cling to some of the entertainment, the music, the food, the dress, whatever you want to name of this world, hanging around that door. We need to examine some things and find out if that is indeed where we need to be. Remove your way far from her. Don't hang around close. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel. God is going to honor some. But others are going to be turned over to the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with your wealth and your labors be in the house of a stranger. What did Christ say? Don't let another man take your crown. Don't let anyone take your crown. That's what this is talking about. But your labors be in the house of a stranger, and you mourn at the last when your flesh and your body are consumed. It says there's some mourning, ultimately, you can avoid. But it is sin. It is this world. It is Satan that is leading us to mourning. In a wrong way. Through what? Sin. Difficulty. That's what brings it on. <clears throat> Proverbs 29. Verse 2. Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Here's one reason we're mourning today is that Wicked people took over in the church. Any who were righteous basically were pushed aside. And without going to Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi, we know that much of the trouble that we have today lies at the feet of those who were teachers and ministers. And today, the church is in a mess because too many cases the wicked rule. And it creates a mourning situation. 
Wickedness leads to mourning, doesn't it? Sin leads to mourning. It leads to difficulties in life. Let's go to Hosea 4. Hosea 4. There you are. Hear the word of the Eternal, you children of Israel. For the Eternal has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. A godless nation we're living in. By swearing, and lying, and killing, and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood touches blood. There's so much crime that one pool of blood from a murder is beginning to touch another. Look at the news. It's everywhere. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwells therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yes, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. It says, the land is full of sin, the land is full of crime. It leads to hurt, to mourning, to a time of sorrow. But don't take it out on each other. Be kind and loving to one another. For your people are as they that strive with the priest. The priest busy trying to tell them what they need to do to resolve the problems, to solve the difficulties, and yet people will strive with the priest. Don't want to listen. Don't want to hear it. You know, we have a website out there that has these words that we have been proclaiming on it. And I'll guarantee you it has not been besieged with people who want to hear the message that we have. People aren't out there getting so excited about it that they tell their friends and they tell their neighbors and they tell other people in the church and suddenly we're just booming with people who want to hear a message of repentance, of change, of growth, and that a period of mourning might be good for us. No, they don't want to hear this message right here in Hosea. And even some who are listening will strive against the message. They're standing by the door of this world and do not want to remove themselves far from it. Therefore shall you fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. We know from New Testament, Galatians, that the church is our mother, in the position of mother to help point us toward our Father in heaven. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me, seeing you have forgotten the law of the eternal your God. I will also forget your children. Sometimes we're very concerned about our children and why they're not obeying God and will not serve God and are out in the world doing the world's thing. Well, God's destroyed the church, and He's also rejected our children. He is not calling most of them. A few who will listen, who will hear, and will do what is right, will be called. But most will be rejected, just as the mother has been rejected. 
90% of the church is going to be rejected and thrown into the tribulation. At least 90% probably of our children will go into that tribulation. That's the way it is. Does that make you feel bad, sad, and ready to mourn? Yeah, it does. Don't want to see that. But because we have rejected the knowledge of God and His ways, this is happening. Isaiah 38, verse 9. Isaiah 38. This is about Hezekiah. He was facing death. Now, the church is aging today. We are facing death. Things don't begin to change fairly soon. Much of the church is older around the world. God had told Hezekiah that he was going to die. Hezekiah was all upset by that and wanted God to extend his life and prayed that way. And God granted that. But here's what Hezekiah wrote about his situation. Verse 9. The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. He'd been sick enough that he was thinking. Now, when you're sick, you're sad and mourning, aren't you? We like to feel good. But when we're feeling good is when we don't think. It's when things are bad that we think. I've heard people just around here recently saying, boy, things are bad, you know. When is God going to hear us? When is God going to heal us? When is God going to do this? When is God going to do that? And we're sad because of our spiritual plight today in the church. Now, we're very aware of why these things have come upon the church, because we've read all these scriptures about it that we're reading some of today. But yet it seems interminable sometimes, like, will God ever hear? That's the way Hezekiah had felt. So, being in the house of mourning, rather than the house of hilarity and laughter, had a good effect on Hezekiah, didn't it? Made him think. When he was recovered, he said, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I've lived this long on the earth. Now it looks like I'm about the end of it. I'm going to die. Makes you think. A lot of people, when they get near death, get old, begin to realize their mortality, begin to think. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I'm going to die before he returns. I'll never see him in this life. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Poor me, I'm dying, was basically his attitude, and he was very mournful about it. Otherwise, why would he have gone before God and pleaded for more time? My age has departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off, like a weaver, my life. His bubble was busted, in other words. You're going to let your spiritual bubble be busted because of trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty? Because it seems God is not attentive to us in some respects? He will cut me off with pining sickness from day even to night. Will you make an end of me? He's feeling hopeless, discouraged, frustrated. 
I reckon until morning that as a lion, so will he break all my bones. I just think God is just going to take me like a lion and he's going to break every bone in my body. From day even to night will you make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. They call them mourning doves because they have such a mournful cry. We have them around here. You can hear them every morning and evening, that mournful sound of a dove. It's beautiful, and yet it's haunting and sad-sounding. I did mourn as a dove. My eyes fail with looking up. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of looking up, God. I'm, I'm tired of the situation. Do you ever feel weary and tired? You fight human nature so long. You fight this world. You fight everything. I can begin, I'm beginning to understand what Paul said and felt when he wrote, I just as soon die and be with the Lord in the resurrection than I had to go on living in this life and fighting myself is what is implied and people and enemies and so on. He says, but for you, I'll go ahead and live because I know a job needs to be done. And I think we can equate with that with Paul. It gets tiresome. It gets wearisome fighting ourselves all the time and fighting the world. What shall I say? Verse 15. He has both spoken to me and himself has done it. God has told us what was going to be coming on us. We're just like Hezekiah. This was written for us. <clears throat> he has both spoken to me and himself has done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. All the life that we live on this earth, if we have a true, proper attitude of spiritual poverty and of mourning, there's a certain bitterness, a certain frustration and a mourning that goes with that. It is hope for the future that keeps us moving forward. Otherwise, we are of all men most miserable. They aren't fighting it. They're staying in the house of mirth and laughter and joy and the society and the culture of this world. Now, everything's not going very well for them either, is it? This world is full of trouble, difficulty, and we read there how the land is full of lying and cheating and swearing and killing and adultery and everything else. So they're not as happy as they would like you to believe they are. How many commercials have you ever seen on TV that depicted what the world is really like? And all these people smoke cigarettes, smoke cigars, drink pop, eat candy, all these things, because that's the good life, and all the young and slim do that. How many commercials do you see of people drinking 7-Up, lying in bed with diabetes and one piece at a time being hacked off their body as the circulation stops? How many commercials have you seen of people smoking and you don't see the Marlboro Man riding out on a horse? That's an old one. Uh, they don't have those anymore, do they? But how often do you see a commercial by cigarette companies that show a guy smoking it through the hole in his throat? They don't show that kind. 
We eat the french fries, we eat the bad oils, we eat the junk, we eat the white flour and drink the homogenized milk, perhaps eat the candies. How many of those gum and candy commercials and so on do you see that shows people having a heart attack and like falling out on the floor shaking as they die? They don't show that, do they? No, they show young people on the beach in bathing suits playing volleyball while they do those things. The world will not admit nor accept its true state. And you know the church is in the same place. Most of the church is unwilling to admit spiritual poverty and mourn for it and do something about it. Most are still in the 7-Up commercial thinking they have it made and everything is just fine with them. And it's somebody else's problem. These scriptures just go on and on. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and all these things is the life of my spirit. So will you recover me and make me to live? Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. In other words, instead of peace, and we all want peace, don't we? Peace of heart, peace of mind. But instead, we have bitterness over our spiritual and physical plight sometimes. But you have in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Hezekiah was forgiven. Now, he went through an awful lot of mourning and trial and trouble and difficulty and bitterness first, didn't he? And yet God eventually delivered him, heard his prayer, forgave his sins, and gave him 15 more years to live. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot celebrate you. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for your truth. You die and you quit praying. You quit studying. You quit learning truth. You quit living. The living, the living, he shall praise you. He faced death, and he decided he preferred life. As I do this day, the father to the children shall make known your truth. The eternal was ready to save me. Now, he didn't save him immediately. He let him go through some mourning first, didn't he? He was ready to do it, but he waited. <clears throat> Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Eternal. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster on the boil, and he shall recover. So God, by use of the fig plaster, preserved Hezekiah's death, preserved his life from death. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Eternal? How do I know I'm going to live? How do I know that you will do what you have promised? How do we know God will do what he has promised? We live and walk by faith, patience, waiting for his deliverance. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Behold! The eternal's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. He isn't short-armed all of a sudden and his hand can't reach us. That isn't the problem. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. We pray and sometimes it seems to fall on a deaf ear. His, his ear hasn't 
you know, been so heavy that it fell over on top of itself and our prayers can't get in. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, but he will not hear. What do we have to mourn about? Our sins that have separated us from God so that he doesn't hear us. He won't even look at us. He turns his head from us because he is frustrated. He goes on down and talks about the spider's web and eggs of vipers and so on and so forth, uh, which we understand. Let's skip on to verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the, as in the night. We're in desolate places as dead men. The whole church is groping around not knowing where it's going or how to find the way. Some think they found the way, but is it really the way? Where is it leading them? Worldwide, for the most part, found the way back to false religion. And they think that's the way to go. But are they blind? We look for judgment, but there is none. Our, our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our iniquities, we know them. A lot of people in the church, they don't know their iniquities. They're hiding their eyes from them. But we know them, don't we? We look at these scriptures, and we're willing to look at ourselves and see our sins and our iniquities. We're willing to see our Laodiceanism, and that we are blind and naked, and therefore spiritually poor. Now, when you recognize you're poor, don't you try to do something about it. What about the poor in this nation today who are physically poor? What are they trying to do? Anything they can to become wealthy. They may have tried business and failed there. So what do they do? They buy a lottery ticket. Anything to get wealthy. They'll take what little they have and their credit card and go to Las Vegas and max it out trying to get wealthy. A last grasping hope to have the good things that they so desire. People will go, you know, you know why people are suckered in by pyramid schemes that make three or four or five people at the top wealthy before everyone else has a garage full of stuff they can't sell? You know how they pull people in? Because people are poor for the most part and they want something so badly they will listen to the snake oil merchants of today and be sucked in by those things. Get-rich-quick schemes are a dime a dozen. And they're all over the television. And people listen because they want something. What about us? Do we want righteousness? Do we want to be like God? Are we groping Blindly? Or are we finding the light? Nelson gave a sermon about God being light. We need to go to the light if we're going to find light. <clears throat> Verse 15, Truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Even if you try to do what's right, you become prey or to be preyed upon by those who would jerk you and drag you away. Try to seek God's way, and it seems like everything is against us, right? 
Everything in this society and culture is designed to drag you away from God. And it doesn't make any difference what it is. Satan has so cleverly counterfeited everything that everything is polluted. The soil is polluted. The air is polluted. The food is polluted. The entertainment is polluted. Education is polluted. Science is polluted. The oceans are polluted. There is nothing you can name that man has not polluted on this earth. What will it take for us to run from this world's door, not hang around it, and get far from it? And yet everything in the world is alluring and tries to draw us into it. It's like being in, uh, you know, at the, in the water below a dam. It swirls and sucks and pulls. It'll suck you right under. They even have ropes and buoys out quite a ways from a dam below. So that when you come up in your boat, you won't go into that danger area. Because the vortex of swirling water will suck you under. Now that's just the way this world is. Trying to suck us in. Verse 11, or 16. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness it sustained him. So God is looking for leadership right now to help us out of this mess. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation. Reminds you of Ephesians, right? Paul was quoting from this. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and is clad with zeal as a cloak. That's what we have to do when it seems like God is not hearing and we're groping blindly. We'd better start looking to salvation and looking to God in every way. Let's go to Ezekiel 7. <clears throat> Ezekiel 7. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Also, Son of Man, thus says the Eternal God to the land of Israel, An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land, north to south, east to west. God is calling for an end of this society, this culture, this nation, which is the leader of all Israel. It's coming on all Israel, but it's coming first on Babylon, the great America, where it's going to hit first. Now is the end come upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. He's already sent it on the church. Spiritual Israel got it first. Now it's about to fall on physical Israel. Verse 7, The morning has come to you, O that you that dwell in the land. The time has come, the day of trouble is near, and not the sounding again of the mountains. This isn't an echo. This time it's coming. It's coming fast. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon you, and accomplish my anger upon you. Verse 9, My eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. Verse 10, Behold the day, behold it has come, the morning has gone forth, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. God hates pride. Verse 12, The time has come, the day draws near, let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. Our commercial world is about to be destroyed. Read Revelation 17 and 18. 
There's going to be a gigantic collapse of the economy. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, although they were yet alive. You know, somebody sold you something on time, be it a house, whatever it was. He's not even going to come to claim what you owe him for, even if he is alive. It wouldn't do him any good. Because there's no food. Famine and pestilence, the sword, and captivity will come. Let's see. Verse 14, they've blown the trumpet even to make all ready, but none goes to the battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. When this comes, it's going to come as a cascade, and they will be helpless to even fight. The sword is without, and the pestilence and the famine within. He that is in the field shall die with the sword. He that is in the city, famine and pestilence shall devour him. But they that escape of them shall escape, and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, everyone, for his iniquity. God is bringing all this upon this nation because of our sin and our iniquity. So the mourning is for cause. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? They mourn because of unrighteousness. They mourn because of sin and iniquity. They mourn because they are not like God and are striving to become like God. And if that mourning wises them up and they begin to learn something, because mourning, trouble, is a teaching tool, then they will be delivered. Otherwise, it will not happen. All hands shall be feeble, and all knees shall be weak as water. Verse 19, they'll cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the eternal. There are a lot of people today who are saying, get rid of your fiat dollars, buy gold and silver, because the dollar is going to go in the tank, which it's headed there, and it's going to go there. But they think gold and silver will see them through the trouble that is to come, and they'll come out on the other side wealthy. No, they won't. The gold and the silver will also be thrown in the street because God is going to knock this thing clear to the ground. We're not going to have just another Great Depression. You see, people in the world who are analyzing this think that there's a depression coming which is going to be worse than 1929. And they are right. They just don't understand that the whole thing is going away this time. That a third of our people will die of famine and pestilence, a third will die of the sword in the street and in their house, and a third will go into captivity and most will die there as slaves, worked to death. They don't grasp just how big this thing is that's coming and coming soon. They see it coming, they're watching it coming, they just don't realize how bad it's really going to be. They think they'll recover through having what they call real wealth, silver and gold. But what is real wealth? The silver and gold of righteousness. Treasure in heaven. That's the only thing that will save you. See, they're stopping just short of true understanding. Yes, there are people who understand the world economy is in deep 
trouble and is about to implode. They understand America is in deep trouble, deep debt to others, hated by everyone, and that will soon fall and be totally destroyed. Some people can even see that far. But what they are missing is God. They say, these dollars won't save us, this gold and silver will. No, the only treasure that will do you any good is treasure in heaven. Because God is the only one who can save from what is coming. Now, yes, the dollar is sinking quickly, and silver and gold, which are true money, will maybe last a little longer than dollar bills. But they, too, will not last long. They're a good hedge against inflation temporarily, perhaps, as the dollar and the economies of the world continue toward collapse. But they are not a long-term solution. Only treasure in heaven is a long-term solution. So physical people, apart from God and apart from the Scripture, understand that we are in deep trouble. They just don't grasp how far it will go or who can save them out of it. So they're to false riches. Because if the dollar bill is false riches, and certainly it is, then ultimately gold and silver are also false riches because they're just physical metals that can do you no good in a time of famine and pestilence when there is no food and the sword... You know, ounce of gold in your hand when the sword comes isn't going to do you a whole lot of good, is it? When you go into captivity, they'll take it all away from you if you still have it. So, it also, ultimately, is false money. The only currency of any lasting, true, eternal value, eternal value, is treasure in heaven. That's it. Should not we be absolutely elated and happy to know what will survive? Gold and silver, diamonds, other gems will not survive. The gold and precious metals and precious stones of good character, of love, of peace, of joy, of faith, of doing to your brother as you would have him do unto you, will survive. God will save that. When God looks down on this earth, that's the only thing he sees that's worth saving. So, if that's all God sees that's worth saving, why don't we have a savings account of those things that he appreciates and values? He says all the gold and the silver is mine. He made the earth. He made everything that's here. The only thing that he is waiting to see is if we have true spiritual value. That's what counts. And he makes it very clear in Malachi and many other scriptures that gold, true gold, has to be refined and silver has to be refined in the fire of pressure. And when you're under pressure, you're sad and you mourn. 
So, blessed are those who see their iniquity and the false values that this world has and see true righteousness, true riches, and seek and follow that. They mourn because they don't have enough of it. People in this world are mourning because they don't have enough dollars or gold or houses or cars. They're seeking materiality. But materiality is transitory, and it's about to be taken away entirely because it is an idolatrous approach. Covetousness is idolatry. This materialistic world is going to be destroyed. And which country is the most materialistic on earth today? America. And it will be destroyed first. First. We are the most covetous, the most idolatrous nation on earth. And yet we're Israel. You know, it's kind of like the preacher's kids. We've all seen that. Sometimes the preacher's kids are the worst. Because they've got to prove that they're cool and they're just as bad as you are. And Israel, chosen of God, God's kid in that sense instead of the preacher's kid, seems to be hell-bent on a course to prove it can be the most decadent people on earth. And we're so proud of our filth that we export it to the entire world in any way we can. TV, radio, CDs, you name it. Whatever we produce here, we send elsewhere to pervert them. We're the preacher's kids, this nation. We're trying to be cool. We're trying to show... We can be as bad as bad can be. That's cause for mourning. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 8. Well, verse 22. My face will I turn also from them, and they shall pollute my secret place. For the robber shall enter into it and defile it. His secret place was centered in Pasadena at one point. And thieves and robbers and liars and the evil ones, robbers entered and defiled it. Make a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes. It's like you could just one link to the, to the next. All kinds of crimes can be linked together and make a chain. The city is full of violence. Wherefore, I will bring the worst of the heathen, and they shall possess their houses. It's not just the land, the city that's full of physical violence. The organizations, the churches are violent toward each other. One will say, we're the only ones, and they will even proclaim, you cannot talk to anyone who is not in our organization, even your own physical children. The only one you can talk to is the one you're married to if they're not in X organization. Everyone else is persona non grata. Can't touch them, can't talk to them. 
And then recently I heard there's another one, leader of a group, that said, you can't talk to anybody who's in that other group. Do we have character, spiritual, assassination going on? Those people who are in the church, as long as there's a different church than ours, are so bad you cannot even talk to them. Where is mercy and love in that, I wonder? Haven't we all sinned and come short of the glory of God? What good does it do for the pot to call the kettle black? If we truly had the attitude of spiritual poverty and of mourning, we would be so busy recognizing the difference between us and God that we wouldn't have time to be too worried about whether people in other organizations were repenting or not. We shouldn't be fighting with them. Now, I'm mentioning some things that are going on, but I'll still speak to anybody in any of those organizations. We should. Why do we think we're better than them? If we do, we're guilty of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. If we truly understand our own spiritual poverty, why would we be throwing rocks at other people? We should be mourning our own spiritual lack and lack of treasure in heaven and not comparing ourselves among ourselves and saying we're better than them. Now, let's be truthful and honest. Are we really any better than anyone else? I'm not. I'm not so spiritual that I don't have to struggle with myself every day. Vanity, jealousy, envy, pride, ego. You know, there's nothing really wrong with me other than lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, and that kind of thing. That's all that's wrong. Oh, that's plenty. No, we need to be here preparing ourselves as stones for the temple and as members of the Bride of Christ, not worrying about others and how bad they might be and not speaking to them because, as Isaiah says, don't come near me, I'm holier than thou. Do we see that in the church today? That's Isaiah 64 or 5, somewhere right along there. Don't get near me, I'm holier than thou. Is that an attitude born of spiritual poverty and mourning because of iniquity? I think not. We'd better see the difference between us and God. That was the point with Job. And that's the point with us today. Now with Job, what did God do? He put that man in severe mourning. He took everything that was dear on this earth away from Job and even his health to the point he was in severe pain. And he bewailed and mourned over his situation. God didn't answer right away, did He? He let Job suffer with that. And when he finally saw that Job 
was in a mood that he would actually listen and not defend himself, not justify himself, not justify his character and his integrity. But when he finally saw Job reach a point where he would actually listen, then he told him, Job, where were you when I created the heavens? Where were you when I made the deep? Job began to feel about that tall. And he realized suddenly his spiritual poverty. And he said, oh God, I'm sorry. I failed to see myself for what I really am. But more importantly, I forgot or I failed to see you for who you really are. And when he saw that vast difference, it humbled him. His pride, his vanity, his pride in his integrity and his character and all the things that he bragged to his friends about suddenly vanished. And when he truly mourned his situation, after all he had been through, changed his attitude, and God blessed him. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But it is a process that has a goal and a purpose that God puts us through. How am I going to get through all this? Scripture is written down. Let me just read a few. I, I don't want to spend two or three sermons on this. There is so much in the Bible. Uh, Lamentations 2, verse 5. The Eternal was an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Now, what is God's ultimate goal and purpose? Romans eleven twenty six. All Israel shall be saved, right? God's purpose in all that is going on on this earth, allowing Satan to deceive it, allowing the sin, the wretchedness, everything that is going on, he ultimately has a purpose of saving all Israel and most of mankind. So, why does God allow all this suffering and misery that is here? So that we might learn from it. So that man, when he has gone through all of this and has been sick, dying, and dead, can either live into the millennium or come up in the white throne judgment with a different attitude, a change of heart, a, recogni a recognition of spiritual poverty and of mourning for all that man has done. Then he will have an attitude like Job where he's ready to obey ready to do what God says, and then be comforted and blessed. God has a purpose in all this. It says the eternal was like an enemy. You, you know, you, you thought this guy was an enemy, and then all of a sudden we look around and it seems like God's the enemy. <coughs> well, he portrays himself. Amos 8, verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning. The feasts of joy that we have enjoyed, feasts of tabernacles and so on, so I'm going to turn it into mourning. All your songs into lamentation. I will bring up sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head. 
and I will make it as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. Like your only son had just died. That's the way God's going to make conditions in the church and ultimately in the world. Lamentations 1.4, the ways of Zion do mourn because none, of, none come to the solemn feast. People were drifting away one by one by one. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. God is doing this to us. Chapter 2 of Lamentations. Over and over and over it says, I did all these things. I'm not going there today for sake of time, and we'll get there after Jeremiah anyway whenever we finish that series. Amos 8.5 saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat? This is the end of the summer when the harvest came in as the setting here of Amos 8. Harvest time. But they want the feast, the seventh month, out of the way so they can go on with Materialistic society, buying and selling and enjoying. Seventh month begins the time of the harvest festivals. First day is a holy day. Then you have a fast. Then you have the Day of Atonement. Then you have eight days of Feast of Tabernacles. And travel back and forth and in between. And they want that month out of the way. Because I can go on making money. That's what's important. When will the new month be gone? The one of harvest. The end of the summer. Getting where God's feasts, God's ways, God's times are in the way of commerce. Verse 8. Shall not the land tremble for this and everyone mourn that dwells therein? Isaiah 3. Uh, maybe I'll go back to that. I just wrote down the one verse. Isaiah 3. Verse 12. Isaiah 3.12. It's for my people, children of their oppressors, and women rule over them. Children are oppressing agents today who oppress their parents because they want, 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 want whether it be toys and material things, or whether it be total attention. And they become oppressive. They become a burden. Because they want, want, and it's frustrating to you to be able to provide everything they want, and when really you shouldn't be giving them everything they want. Now, God is pretty smart. He's not giving us everything we want, is He? He's letting us learn some things. Oh, we whine and we cry like a child. Trying to get our way. That's not what God's into. He wants us to come boldly before His throne, not whining, not crying, not pitching fits, but because He's God. And He wants us to have our attention on Him, not His attention on us in a wrong way. Now, He has great attention on us because He loves us. But his world does not revolve around us. Our world must revolve around God. And what we have come to is God is not much in the picture, but our lives revolve around ourselves. And that's the way our children tend to be in this society. They oppress you. 
And women rule over them. They're the ones that have the say, ultimately. The men, manhood is gone. The strong father figure is gone. Men are portrayed in the comics and on TV as doofuses who can't do anything right. And our society has accepted that. So men are looked down upon, and women and children take the lead ahead of man. And if you tell a man he ought to be the ruler in his house and the head of the house, he doesn't have the skills or the ability anymore to do it, so he picks up a club and says, you will obey me. And then the relationship gets worse because he has no idea how to lead and to rule. Society has taken that away from us. Cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The eternal stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. Please hear me, God says. The eternal will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, where you've eaten up the vineyard. This is spiritually and physically. And the nation, the leaders have destroyed us and are destroying us with malice aforethought. And that was done even in the church with malice aforethought to take us away from God. What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, says the eternal of hosts? And then he says, the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. This is talking about women, the churches, proud, dress themselves all up. It goes through all manner of things I don't have time to go through. Because this society is obsessed with physical looks. Everything, every woman has to be beautiful, has to be pretty. That's the way to success. Physical beauty is what they're after. So they wear clothes to try to show off their beauty in the very best way they can. They wear makeup. They wear all kinds of things that flatter and glitter and bring attention to the self. That's why high heels were designed, out of pride and vanity, to make a woman as tall as a man, and they clatter and tinkle as she walks down the hall to draw attention to her rear end. That's why they were designed. That's why makeup was designed. That's why the clothing that is worn was designed. We have to be very careful of those things, and as Paul said, dress modestly, act modestly. We may have to do away with ties and high heels. Don't know. But that's hanging around the door of the world, I think. Men have their vanity too. Therefore the Eternal will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Eternal will discover their secret parts. That which we want to show so much is going to be shown and there will be rape and pillaging and slavery as a result, spiritually and physically. Verse 24, it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of uh, a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Now, is it wrong for us to groom ourselves and to dress modestly and look nice? No. But if vanity is behind it, ego is behind it, it all becomes wrong. And that's what this country runs on, is physical beauty. 
above anything else. Your mighty men, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Our national and our spiritual sins are doing us in. And we try to look good as churches, as the daughters of Zion, and we swell up in pride and self-righteousness and think we're holier than thou. Let's not let that affect us. Let's instead recognize our spiritual poverty, our sins, and as a result, mourn for our spiritual lack, rather than be proud like it seems almost every daughter of Zion today tries to be. We're the best. We're the finest. If you'll just be in our group, everything will be fine. No, not necessarily. Because God will judge us individually. And being with someone doesn't make you judged good automatically by any means. Being here doesn't save you. The only thing that will save you if you listen to these words in this book and repent and mourn for your spiritual lack and seek treasure in heaven. Micah 1, verses 8 through 9. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. He has come into the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a type of the church. So we wail and howl. And it seems that our wound is incurable. There's only one balm in Gilead. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, our Savior. We better go there. Lamentations 5.15, the joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. That's probably enough of those. There are lots. <laughs> I'll skip over some that I wrote down, and I didn't write down most of them. We could go all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the minor prophets today, and see this over and over and over again, but we don't have time. So that's probably enough of it. We've heard a lot of it in the past. We'll probably hear more in the future because that's what the Bible is full of. But I wanted to get enough here to see that there is mourning, and there is mourning for cause, and if the mourning is correctly handled, good will come from it. Let's go on and we'll see that before we're done. Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Let's see, what do I want here? Matthew 9, verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bridegroom or bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. When Christ is not here, it's a time to mourn and to fast. It isn't a time of joy and wedding, is it? That's coming later. But he's gone. He's not here walking the earth with us. Doesn't mean that he's not with us in spirit. Doesn't mean he can't guide and lead us if we'll turn to him. But we're looking to the time that he literally comes in glory to harvest us from the face of this earth. So until that time comes, our joy is not fulfilled and it is a time of mourning 
and fasting. Very clear from Jesus Christ Himself. Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Maybe we don't relate to him enough. Maybe we don't think about and understand what he went through enough. We'd like to be all happy, happy, joy, joy. Well, while he walked this earth, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Despised, and we esteemed him not. Luke 6, verse 25. Woe to you that are full! Now, what does it say later in this Sermon on the Mount? But it is almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why would you want great wealth and riches on this earth when it makes it nearly impossible to enter the kingdom of God? Physical materiality is not the goal. Treasure in heaven is. He said, be content with food and clothing. We don't need to be rich. Woe to you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. We can just go laughing our way on through, and God says we're going to wind up mourning and weeping. So now is the time for you and me to weep and to mourn. The bridegroom hasn't come. Now is the time to hurt. Now is the time to learn, to be taught. Somebody wants to just go through a world with a happy face all the time, they're ignoring reality. James 4, verse 8. James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. We want God to turn to us. We want to be close to God. There's cause and effect. He is not going to turn to us until we turn to Him. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, how do you draw near to God? He explains the process in the very next words. Cleanse your hands. Wash up. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Does that sound like we as Christians today need to be laughing our way through life and ignoring reality? No, it doesn't. He says if you're going to draw near to God and have Him draw near to you, here's what you need to do. Humble, verse 10, yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He shall lift you up. Don't lift yourself up with pride, ego, vanity, whatever form you like best, but humble yourself. Recognize your spiritual poverty and mourn. There's a reason Christ taught Matthew 5 in the order in the way that he did. Recognize your poverty and mourn for it. That's the next step. 
2 Corinthians 7, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 7, 7. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Now, Paul is talking to these people and telling them that an envoy had been there, and he reported your earnest desire, and implied there, is for righteousness, for spiritual treasure, and your mourning. Mourning was one thing Paul complimented them for. It's good that you're mourning, he said. Maybe we should change our reactions around here a little bit. Maybe somebody comes by and says, man, I'm having a bad day. Oh, it's awful. And say, good. That'll get you a slap alongside the head, wouldn't it? But in a way, that's right. When we're going through trial, trouble, and tribulation, we're drawing nearer to God. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the eternal will deliver them out of them all. Ezekiel 24. This is quite a story. Verse 16. God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke. All the things that you desire, would enjoy, God says, I'm going to take away in one swipe of the hand. Yet neither shall you mourn nor weep, neither shall your tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire of your head upon you, and put on your shoes upon your feet, and cover not your lips, and eat not the bread of men, God says, I'm going to take your trouble, I mean the things you like, away. But he tells Ezekiel, I don't want you to sorrow. I don't want you to mourn for those things. And look what happened. Verse 18, So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. He didn't even mourn his wife. Ezekiel apparently loved his wife a great deal. And God says, I'm going to take away with one stroke of my hand everything that you love and is dear to you. And the next day, his wife died. Now, normally we would mourn such a thing, but God had a plan and a purpose. He wanted to save Ezekiel in the end, and he also wanted... Ezekiel's example and message to go out to the rest of Israel as an example. That we're not to mourn that which we love dearly on this earth. We're to mourn our lack of closeness to God, because that's what these people were suffering from that Ezekiel was talking to. They were in sin. And that's what we truly should be mourning, not those things that in this life, even our own mates that are important to us and that we love.
Well, sometimes a mate might be taken away. And while that hurts as hard as anything perhaps can hurt, we are not to take mourning as our position, but we are to take serving God Almighty as the way to go. Because we are looking to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to return to this earth with healing in his wings. So he used a very, very emotional, poignant example in Ezekiel as a witness and a testimony to us. We recently had a death here of a very beloved man, and his wife is still alive and still has very deep emotions. But I'll tell you this, her attitude is seeking God and mourning over her lacks and needs and spiritual condition more than it is for her husband of 49 years. I know that. I hear it come out of her mouth. And even though there's a deep hurt there, there's a great lesson for all of us. And perhaps God allowed that to happen just like he did with Ezekiel that we might see what is truly important as opposed to anything on this earth, even a dearly beloved mate. What is really important? God can resurrect the dead physically. And He will. That's what really matters. Not what we might cherish on this earth. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now, he's referring back here to Genesis 1, where he said he wanted the light to shine out of darkness. Has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He wants the light not to come forth in a darkened world physically, but he wants... Spiritual light to shine. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're living here on this earth, earthly vessels, our bodies. But it isn't for our glory. It's ultimately to the glory of God who can change it to spirit. We are troubled on every side. See if this sounds familiar. Verse 8. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Constantly aware of his death for us. For we which live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So let him, let him lead his life in you, live his life in you. It's got to be manifest here. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief for the sins of the world that we heaped upon him. And we should be sorrowful and mourning because of our lack 
of spiritual treasure and our lack of value to God and building treasure in heaven by changing what we are to what we should be. What this is all about. Ezekiel 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that, done, that be done in the midst thereof. God has commissioned an angel to go all through the church and to put a mark of God, a seal of God, not the mark of the beast, but a mark of God upon all those that sigh and cry, that mourn because of the spiritual condition of the world, the church, and themselves. Those are the ones God wants sealed with His mark, not the mark of this world. Verse 4, chapter Jeremiah 4, 27. For thus has the Eternal said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it. I have purposed it, and will not relent, neither will I turn back from it. It's coming. It's relentless. It will happen. Jeremiah 12, verse 4. How long shall the land mourn? And the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. The mourning, the destruction is because of wickedness. How long will it last? The beasts are consumed and the birds <laughs> because they said, he shall not see our last end. God isn't in the picture. God won't do anything. We've got to save ourselves through science and medicine or whatever. Joel 2.12 Therefore also now, says eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and weeping, and with mourning. <coughs> draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. So he says, turn with fasting, weeping, mourning. That's the attitude we should be in. At the beginning we said, what time is it? Is it time to fast, or is it time to flap? Is it time to mourn, or time to play? I think it's very clear. This is a time to mourn because of the wickedness. And God will seal those with a mark who sigh and cry for what is going on. Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repents him of the evil. Those who mourn and weep and fast are going to be comforted. He will turn, and he will relent only with those. All right, let's see. If we do what Joel tells us, what the other scriptures have been telling us all day. Isaiah 51:11. Isaiah 51:11. Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and mourning shall flee away. The time for mourning will end. The time for joy and happiness will come. Read Isaiah 54, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 60, verse 20. Your sun shall no more go down, neither shall your moon withdraw itself. For the eternal shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Sounds like those who mourn are going to be comforted. Isaiah 61, verse 3. To appoint 
unto them that mourn in Zion. The mourners, the ones that sigh and cry for the abominations. To give unto them beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he might be glorified. Jeremiah 31, verse 13. Then shall a virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. <coughs> Those who are mourning today will be joyous tomorrow. The fruit of the Spirit ultimately will be joy, but the works of the flesh have brought mourning. And when those works of the flesh are removed and God forgives, then the Spirit will prevail and joy will come. Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. There's a year coming when those who mourn will be comforted. To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, that's the church, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Let's see, I already read that one. Uh, let's go down to Isaiah 66, verse 10. Rejoice you with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. So those who mourn over what is happening now are going to have joy and happiness ahead when God turns us around and blesses us as we have never been blessed before, or can even comprehend if we are those that mourn today, we will have joy tomorrow. I'll read one more. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted.